Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. We're in a series called The Five Solas. These teachings are helping us celebrate the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Today is message number four called Sola Fide, Our Only Instrument. Sola Fide is Latin for by faith alone. The main idea we're covering is justification before God. Justification is Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to us to satisfy God's perfect justice, and it only comes by faith. You may have heard justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Here's John with part two of Sola Fide, our only instrument. So how can God do this by grace alone and not be an unjust judge in the process? Well, this leads us to the second truth that Sola Fide emphasizes. Look what Paul says. Sola Fide emphasizes that the ground of our justification is the work of Christ alone. Look what he says in verses 24 and 25. Look, being justified as a gift by his grace, here's the ground, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That's the ground right there. It is Christ's saving work on our behalf. So the issue of sola fide in in the Reformation was a debate over the ground called the material cause of our salvation by which a sinner is justified before God. According to the medieval Roman church, there's a twofold ground of our justification before God. There is the righteousness of Christ plus the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the grace of sanctification that is cooperating in good works. So the material cause of justification, according to Rome, is Christ plus the believer's good works. Christ plus the believer's inherent righteousness. And so the debate between Rome and the Reformers can be summarized as follows. Is the ground of our justification before God the righteousness of Christ imputed to us? Or is the ground of our justification the righteousness of Christ working in us? Inherent righteousness. Are we justified and made and declared to be right with God by a righteousness that is within us? Or are we declared by God to be right with him by a righteousness that is outside of us and imputed to us? That was the issue, and it remains the issue to this day. Rome affirms the prior, inherent righteousness. The reformers affirm the latter, imputed righteousness. Let me help you understand this. The Roman church taught and teaches that justification is a joint effort. It is a cooperation of man with God. Faith enables a sinner to become righteous so that God will eventually declare him righteous. In other words, sanctification, the process of becoming righteous, precedes justification, the declaration that you're actually righteous. It flips the gospel on its head. 
For the Roman church, the, the, the reformers understood that God only declares righteous those who are inherently righteous. If you're perfectly righteous, God will say you're justified. A sinner is justified by grace through faith in Christ, plus your contribution of your own inherent righteousness. It is faith in Christ, plus you cooperating in good works. Am I I clear? Is everybody getting this? So the Roman church errs by merging justification and sanctification. Justification becomes this infusion of a substance called grace, like a medicine that we learned last week, through the means of the sacraments that enables you to cooperate with God to eventually become inherently righteous. And so the ground of justification is something inherent within the believer. But this is the problem the reformers and scriptures teach about being justified on this basis. If justification is dependent on your inherent righteousness, here's the problem. They're never going to be good enough. Your good works will never be good enough to be the ground. Heidelberg Catechism, question 62. Why cannot our good works be the whole or part, cooperation, of our righteousness before God. Here's the answer. Because the righteousness which can stand before the judgment seat of God must be perfect throughout and wholly conformable to the law of God. Whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. You cannot stand before a righteous God on your, the basis or ground of your inherent righteousness, your good works. They're not good enough. So here's our dilemma. God's law contains both precepts and penalties. Precepts are to be obeyed perfectly and penalties for the least failure to give perfect obedience to those precepts. Now, as we've already seen, justification is by grace alone. Why? Because we've all failed miserably to obey God's law perfectly. Who can ever say they, in thought, word, and deed, have perfectly conformed their whole life, every millisecond of it, to the God's perfect standard in his law? Nobody. We have all disobeyed God's law every day of our life and therefore stand condemned before him as our judge fully accountable to the law's demands for perfection and its penalties to give for not giving perfect obedience to those precepts. And so over against the teaching of Rome, the reformers maintained that the ground of our justification is the perfect, imputed, righteousness, obedience of Christ alone. Christ's perfect Imputed righteousness is set in opposition to the believer's imperfect, inherent righteousness. This is the scandal of the gospel. The scandal of the gospel is that God declares the ungodly to be righteous before they actually become inherently righteous. 
Paul states this clearly in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, when he uses Abraham and David as examples of ungodly men. And he says both, Abraham and David, listen, he says, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, imputed, reckoned as righteousness. God justifies the ungodly. That is startling, shocking good news, is it not? Paul says, God makes this startling pronouncement at the very beginning of your Christian life, which is not just the first stage of salvation. God's declaration justified is his legal pronouncement on the whole of your life, past, present, and future. And so God declares the ungodly righteous by imputing and crediting Christ's righteousness to us through faith alone. What is this righteousness? You need to understand this. What is this righteousness that Paul says has been manifested apart from the law? Listen, it is Christ's obedience. It is his active and passive obedience. As our representative, Christ assumed our obligation to perfectly fulfill the precepts of God's law in our place. He perfectly obeyed God's law. That is righteousness, you see. He perfectly satisfied the law's demand for perfect obedience. This is what we refer to as the active obedience of Christ. Listen to the Jewish leaders. Jesus made this shocking claim. John chapter 8, verse 29. I always do what pleases the Father. Who of you out there could say that today? Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill. Jesus' obedience went beyond just his actions, his outward actions. It encompassed his thought, words, and deeds as motives. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 9, the author quotes... Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, and he attributes the words of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, to Jesus, who says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Jesus not only desired to do his Father's will, but he delighted in doing it. His obedience was not forced compliance like your child when you tell him to go clean the room. It's kind of like the story of the, little, of the mother who told her little boy, son, go clean your room. And the little boy said, no, son, go clean your room. The little boy said, no, son, go clean your room or else, okay, I'm going to go clean my room, but I'm not cleaning my room in my heart, right? Forced compliance. That's not obedience, Jesus didn't have forced compliance. I delight to do your will. I delight. Jesus' obedience was always an obedience that flowed from a genuine love for his father. John chapter 14, verse 31, so that the world may know that I love the father, I do exactly 
as the Father commanded me. Jesus came as the true and obedient human servant on our behalf. Jesus lived for us. Jesus lived for us the kind of life we should live but can't live and haven't lived. Jesus came to do for us what we, because of our sinful nature, could not do. It is his perfect obedience to God's moral law, will, that constitutes the ground of our righteousness before God. That is why we don't have a legal fiction. God's law, we've also established, though, not only has precepts to be perfectly obeyed, but it has penalties for the least failure to do so. And so Jesus, as our substitute, not only fully obeyed God's precepts in our place, but he also suffered the full force of the law's penalties in our place. This is what theologians refer to as Christ's passive obedience. Christ's active and passive obedience are not two separate acts. They are one act of obedience that emphasizes both his fulfillment of the law's precepts and his satisfaction of its penalties. Christ's passive obedience refers to his suffering the penalty for our sin. You understand that the moment Christ was conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, he began his suffering right then. Christ suffered throughout his whole life. And his obedient suffering, Paul says, came to a culmination at the cross. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what Paul has in mind in our passage here in Romans chapter 3. And I want you to look at it for a moment. In Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, Paul grounds our justification solely in Christ's passive obedience. Look at the two saving works that Paul grounds our justification upon, both Christ's redemption and Christ's propitiation. What is redemption? It's very simple. Redemption means to buy back or secure the release of someone from slavery, from captivity, by the payment of a ransom. This word redemption all throughout the New Testament goes all the way back to the Old Testament Exodus event and the blood of the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus, chapters 12 through 15. And in the Exodus event, the Lord redeemed Israel from its slavery in Egypt. And what the Exodus event does is that it points forward, the New Testament authors say, to a greater redemption that is found and secured in Jesus for his people as he forgives their sins and passes over them through his death on the cross. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 8. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. We have redemption through his blood. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse, the penalty of the law. Having become a curse for us, 
For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, Paul says that we have been redeemed as slaves so that we might be adopted and received as sons. He says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? Because remember what Paul said in Romans 3? All of us are condemned under the law. God humiliated himself in the incarnation and came down under the law where we were and took that curse on himself. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem, buy back, free from slavery, those who were under the condemnation of the law, so that we might receive the freedom of adoption as sons. Slavery to sonship through the redemption of Christ. And then second, Paul says this propitiation, this work of propitiation. Don't be afraid of big words. If you're going to learn a foreign language, what is the first thing you do? You study its vocabulary because you need to have its vocabulary. We speak a foreign language called the gospel, and it has its own vocabulary. And it's good news, redemption, propitiation. What is that? This reaches all the way back to the Old Testament Day of Atonement. And it refers specifically to the blood of the slain goat by which the Levitical priest sprinkles the blood of the first goat on the mercy seat, which foreshadowed Christ's propitiation. What is that? His full exhaustion of the wrath of God that Paul says everyone is under in Romans 1.18. Jesus, through his death on the cross, has fully exhausted God's wrath and judgment that stands over you and that you are under. And so through Christ's redemption, Paul says that God has shown himself, look at verse 26, to be both just and the justifier. Through his propitiation, God is both just and the justifier. How is that? Through Christ's redemption and through his propitiation, God has shown himself to be just. Why? Because the penalty demanded by the law is not removed, but it is paid for by Christ. And then Paul says to Christ's redemption and his propitiation, God has shown himself to be the justifier. Why? Because he is the one who provides the means of justification and who declares his people to be in right standing with himself by virtue of those, look what he says in verse 26, who have faith in Jesus. This is why God is not an unjust judge, because Jesus satisfied all the demands of God's precepts and penalties through his life and through his death. And so Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4 that Jesus was born under the law. That refers to the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant gave Jesus, the incarnate Son, the opportunity to perform on our behalf. Please hear this. This is the heart of the gospel here. The Mosaic Covenant gave Jesus in history and time the opportunity as a man to perform for you. 
to save you through his active and passive obedience. And that righteousness that was required in the original covenant of works in the garden was fulfilled by Christ in his life and death. You see, listen, God's justice requires that heaven must be earned. Salvation is by works. And the good news is that Jesus came and worked for us. He obeyed for us in his life and in his death. And it is Christ then alone in whom we find the answer to our dilemma before God. His perfect imputed righteousness is the only ground of our righteousness before God. Christ alone obeyed the law's precepts and Christ alone satisfied the law's penalties in our place so that through faith alone, sola fide, we can become the righteousness of God in him. It is through his obedient life, his righteousness, that he fully obeyed every jot and tittle of the law for us. It is through his obedient death that he has fully paid the price demanded by the law for our sin and redeemed us from its curse, its penalty. He did that for us. It is only this message that can give assurance to the ungodly that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. It is only this message that can give assurance to the ungodly that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. You see, when you are justified and declared justified by God, that is the judge's in-time verdict that has already been rendered for you now in the present The good news is that believers have already passed through the great last judgment when Christ suffered the eternal last judgment for them on the cross. Only this message can give the fearful, doubting believer who is struggling with his or her flesh every single day the assurance, Romans 14.4, that the Lord is able to make you stand. The psalmist, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? And the gospel answers, the Lord, through Jesus, can make you stand. This is the good news of the gospel. As Jerry Bridges says, at the cross, there is no tension between justice and mercy. He said, instead, they meet in full harmony. Justice suffers no violence and mercy has full expression. Only God's infinite wisdom and superabundant love could devise such a plan that both satisfies his justice, he is just, and meets our desperate need for mercy, he is the justifier. God is not an unjust judge. Our justification is not a legal fiction because we are grounded in the perfect active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ for our salvation. This leads to a third and very quickly final truth regarding sola fide. How do we come into possession of that, (laughs) right? How do we get such a great gift? Well, sola fide emphasizes that the means of our justification is faith alone. 
faith alone. Let me just quickly summarize this for you if I can. The issue of sola fide was a debate during the Reformation over the instrumental cause of our salvation. What is the means by which we receive salvation from Christ? Rome said that just as there's a twofold ground, there's also a twofold means. The instrumental causes of our justification, Rome says, is the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of penance. It says that by these two sacraments, the grace of justification is received. Let me give you some examples. 30 years after Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Castle Church door, the Roman church convened the famous Council of Trent to respond to the reformers' insistence on sola fide as the sole instrument of our salvation. And it was here that Rome, the Council of Trent, officially sanctioned his view of justification and anathematized sola fide, anathematized the heart of the gospel. Thanks, John. That's part two of Sola Fide, our only instrument. More from the Five Solas series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. I'm Josh Montez. Thanks for listening and join us next time.